0: Um, Dr. Scott, to the Upgraded Executive Podcast. It's great to have you here. Happy to be with you, Nick. Thanks for having me. So, Scott, <laughs> could you give the audience a little bit about your background and your journey to where you are now?
1: So, I live in the Bay Area, but I grew up in New York. I am the son of a chiropractor. I grew up very out of the box when it comes to what medicine is or could be. I didn't know there was a box, a conventional medicine box, because I didn't know it existed until... I was just about to go to college, I think, and I actually had to see a regular doctor to get screened or whatever you need to to go to college. So, my childhood was very informative, to say the least, because my father was somebody who never thought of the world as a zero sum game. It was always more living in a spectrum in the sense of health is a spectrum, but we all have the ability inside of us to. Actually, be the healthiest that we can be. It's all there already. We just need to let go of some other things that are along the way that may be causing issues. He has a really good saying, you know, that healing comes from within. And and there's all sort of derivations of that. So that's how I grew up. And then I decided to go to medical school because it was pretty obvious to me growing up in that environment that he was very limited in what he could do. He had a licensure that was, he was a chiropractor. So in New York, especially. There's a lot of regulations associated with being a chiropractor and what you can and can't do, especially 30 years ago. And so I knew that if I became a medical doctor, I could kind of be a lot more, I don't want to say out of the box, that's not the right word, but kind of, because I could be a medical doctor that was out of the box. I could have conventional training, but at the same time, I could have this alternative upbringing and understand how you can bring these things together. And so I decided to go to medical school. I was in Baltimore for 10 years and during that time I did my medical school there, I did my residency training there and then I started working and practicing there for a little bit before moving to California. It was during my residency that I actually before that actually in medical school when I was a place called the Shock Trauma Center in Baltimore, which if anybody has ever watched The Wire before on HBO, you likely know that Baltimore is famous for its shock and trauma. I saw some crazy crazy shit. But what I found most intriguing and amazing was this gigantic hyperbaric chamber that was in the basement that was used for a number of different things. What I saw was carbon monoxide poisoning and soft tissue injuries, which, and trauma. So what I saw was these really severely injured people or even comatose people that were on ventilators if they were exposed to carbon monoxide, walk out of the chamber after finishing their treatment. and being just floored that this technology had the ability to change somebody from being on a ventilator to them being able to walk out of the chamber 90 minutes later. So when I found out how simple the technology was and understood that it was just oxygen and pressure, you know, two elements that all of us understand intuitively to some degree, combining those two things to have the technology work the way it does, I did all the research, at the time, this is back in like 2007, I think, and just understanding what was being used in this world, in the hyperbaric world, what diseases, what conditions around the US, around the world. And I realized that it could very much be one of those sort of anchoring things for me as I grew into my own practice, understanding that it had this such significant power to heal and to optimize and to synergize, as well as to accelerate healing in general. So. It was because of that experience, very, very fatiguing experience and crazy experience at the Shock Trauma Center that I got involved in hyperbaric medicine. I finished my internal medicine residency, worked as a regular primary care doctor for like a year in Baltimore with my wife at the time. And then she got a job in California and at Stanford actually. And so we moved over to the Bay. That's when I became a medical director of a hyperbaric facility here in San Francisco and started my career As an integrative hyperbaric physician, optimal performance guy, in the sense that I transitioned not only from looking at disease and conditions, but also decided to focus more on what I truly felt a passion for, which was optimizing health rather than just treating disease.
0: Awesome. How do you deal with that tension between the conventional medical world and the alternative medical world? Because you've got a unique insight into both worlds. And Do you find there's any tension there with your sort of value set? Or is it quite clear cut for you?
1: Oh, it's definitely a dance. There's no doubt about it. There's, I like to say that I can speak out of both sides of my mouth. So I can speak conventional, I can speak alternative, and then I can kind of garble it all together into something that sounds integrated in my own way. But there are definitely people in my conventional sphere that I can't talk about alternative things and vice versa. And so there's a kind of a dance to understand where people are in their path or on their path and making, making it so that I engage them in a way that is constructive. I'm not the type usually that likes to push too many buttons right away. I have lots of people in my life that are very good at that. <laughs> and so that's, I let them do those things. In general, because I have a medical license, there are things that I have to be careful about. You know, I can't speak as if i don't have a license because i do i have a medical license and i'm boarded and all those things that's very important to me but at the same time i'm very understanding of those outside of that box and others that say you know screw the medical system you know screw doctors i'm going to take charge of my health i'm going to do my own blood work i'm i'm going to do everything myself i'm going to look at my own data i'm going to be a biohacker about it and that's great too my hope is that i can sort of be somewhere in between where I I can be a resource and benefit to both sides, but when it comes down to it, I truly feel that there's a role for both. And it's just a matter of the frame and the time and the conditions that are associated with how you engage in both of these things, because they're not mutually exclusive. And I think that's really where it's important. And But at the same time, conventional medicine really does drop the ball on optimizing health and maintenance of that of health itself where it does a really good job in the acute care side and trauma especially I have very healthy respect for that as well so for me it's I find myself in a fantastic place I really like being where I am what's your take on science and spirituality and potentially merging and direction of travel with that I think what's nice about both is that they're not, again, mutually exclusive and that you don't have to be a scientist and say that spirituality doesn't exist. And I think you can go on the other end and say that spirituality can exist, but science can exist too. Because actually the fields are coming together in some really interesting ways, especially with quantum physics and zero point fields and and understanding that nothingness, right? that very well may be something we can explain in physics equations, which is very interesting. So for me, that there's a lot of crossover there. There's also, I think, a significant understanding, even if it's not overtly talked about, that there are certain doctors that are really good at what they do, right? But it's not because of anything that they do at all. It's just because they are good at being a healer. And these are, The fantastic surgeons you hear about and orthopedic doctors and general practitioners, like they may be like relatively good at being an orthopedic doctor or being an internal medicine physician, but it has nothing to do really with that when it comes down to it. It becomes how well are they positioned to be a healer? And these things are sort of natural to people that go into the physician profession. I mean, not as much as they used to be because now we have lots of things like you know, x-rays and MRIs and lots of diagnostics where we didn't have those 100 years ago. So if you were going to be a doctor 100 years ago, you needed to be a human. You needed to be spiritually sound on some level or else you weren't going to be a good doctor. So, but I still think that's actually a really important piece for those physicians who truly excel in helping people. Even if they don't understand it, there is something very spiritual about them. And it's not just that they're shifting patients with pills and with practices and with technologies, they're shifting their patients just because of their sheer presence and how they're able to engage with the people that they work with. So I think medicine in general is a very spiritual, it's a very spiritual practice, but it gets lost a little bit in the cognitive processing like anything else in this world. Do you think we're having a conscious awakening at the moment? Do you think there's an ascension happening? I think it's an important question because it's one that I've been asked recently a a decent amount with regards to the pandemic specifically. In the sense of what is this a reflection of and or what is this going to lead to? I think that on one level before all this happened, it does feel like there's been more interest in health. And not just from a reactive perspective, but more from a responsive perspective. How can we optimize our cognitive function, our brain function, our cardiac health? Um, how can we live the best life we can? And and like from a health span perspective rather than a lifespan perspective. There's been a significant more interest in consciousness in the health fields. And now you see all these, you know, these biohackers talking about their psychedelic experiences and doing things that are sort of out of the box of just changing your biology, but also changing your psychology. And so I do feel like it was sort of slowly getting there on some level. But I think what's happened with this pandemic is that it's now you get to choose. You can either say the next time one happens, I'm ready because I've done my work. I've done my foundational health work. I know what my data is but at the same time i've done my spiritual work or i'm continuing to do my spiritual work so that i can engage with this external world in a way that's much more constructive to my to not only my personal health but the health of my family the health of the people that i take care of if you're in that kind of role so i see this as a significant on ramp and a very very painful and bumpy one for a lot of people but also i think a very potentially positive one and a a one that has a significant potential to change things, I hope. What do you mean by painful? You know, you said for some, it's not pleasant, it's painful. And for others, well, I guess the opposite. Well, pain is very instructive, just like pleasure, right? And I think when we understand that pain is just an emotion, it's just like pleasure that they're all reflections of, you know, depending on how esoteric you want to get, but depending on what you consider maybe as vibration. They're just these vibrations that are coming and or these sensations that you're having. Then you get to choose how you feel about them. You get to choose what emotion that you reflect on various aspects of your sensations. So, and I think a lot of that becomes a process of self-discovery and understanding that you do have more of a relationship with these sensations and the emotions that become of them than you realize. So it's a bit esoteric to think about, but that's what I mean by, you know, pain is a very instructive tool, just like failure is a very instructive tool. Like negative emotions, negative events, you know, in quotes, very much have silver linings to them if you just frame it in that way. So this is not just in the esoteric, this is in the real world too. I think that's what's happening in what we're seeing now in with COVID-19 and the fear and the pain that people are going to feel or already are feeling that there is going to be a significant silver lining to this but it's not going to be easy to get there. My message is pretty simple. Just let it be and observe how you feel about it. And then from there you can take it to any level that you want to take it. You can take it from there's got to be a silver lining i'm going to find it right now or it could be just sitting with how you feel those emotions those sensations and just observing them this is the meditative path right this is the path of self discovery that requires personal reflection and contemplation and i hope that when you see lots of fear and lots of pain out there as i do and as we all do that more people are considering that path you know as Some of us have, many of us have before all of these, when maybe something happened in our personal life that caused us to have these kinds of reflections. But I hope that it's a more societal one now, given what's happening.
0: We take a step back and could you just tell the audience what hyperbaric oxygen therapy is and how it practically works?
1: So it's very, very simple, and this is why I felt I resonated with it when I was in medical school is because if you could take such a simple technology and you could potentially have so much healing ability, then I needed to know more about it, and everybody else did too. So, we breathe oxygen, but we also breathe in the air that's around us at sea level about 80% nitrogen and only 21% oxygen. So, you can do the math, so 79% nitrogen. So, when you breathe, you breathe in that oxygen that oxygen gets attached to our red blood cells via a molecule called hemoglobin, and then our oxygen gets delivered to every single cell in our body. Without oxygen, we die because oxygen is really necessary to make energy at the cellular level. So the first thing that we're doing in a chamber is that we're increasing the amount of oxygen that you breathe. The second thing we do is that we increase the amount of atmospheric pressure that your entire body is under. And atmospheric pressure, the simplest way to think about it is if you're under a certain amount of seawater, or any water really for that matter, all the water above you is extremely heavy. That heaviness is pressure. And I'm sure everybody's seen a submarine before, other devices that go deep underwater that are very, they're thick, they're steel, they have lots of protection because of that pressure. And so, So what we're doing in a chamber is that we're simulating the pressure you would feel under a certain amount of seawater. And then we're increasing the amount of oxygen that you breathe from the 21%, typically to somewhere around 100%. And then it's the combination of these two elements, the pressure and the oxygen, that drives more oxygen in circulation. And so those red blood cells that typically carry oxygen are actually usually doing a very good job on their own. If anybody is familiar with a pulse oximeter, or pulsa, If you put one on your finger and check your oxygen level, usually it's going to measure somewhere between 97 and 100 percent if you have normal lungs. And that's measuring the amount of oxygen that's actually saturating those hemoglobin molecules on the red blood cells. That's with just 21 percent oxygen in circulation. So there's not a lot more capacity for you to, to saturate those hemoglobin molecules, only maybe three percent for normal people. So where the oxygen really gets into the system is in the plasma or the liquid of your blood. The liquid of your blood, it's kind of like water to some degree. It's got that more like saline, if you've heard of saline before. So like saline's got like a salt solution kind of thing. It's that kind of consistency and has very little oxygen in it at sea level, but we can diffuse 1200% more oxygen in circulation using a hyperbaric chamber as a result of that pressure. Without that pressure, you can't do it. And with that pressure, you're increasing oxygen carrying capacity to a gigantic amount. And it's that oxygen carrying capacity that really is the impetus, it's the catalyst that changes our physiology when you're in the chamber, both acutely by infusing a bunch more oxygen in the system and then more long-term by that oxygen actually creating what we call epigenetic shifts or shifts in how the DNA is expressing various DNA, various genes, and suppressing various genes, depending on how oxygen interacts with the DNA itself. At least 8,000 genes that are interacting with this high oxygen environment. So there's the acute exposure, which drives more oxygen in circulation, and then there's the long-term benefit of being in a chamber, which is this epigenetic shift that happens as a result of being in there. To make it as simply as I can, you're combining an increased amount of oxygen that you breathe, with increased amounts of pressure in the environment that you are in, that we're simulating. And it's the combination of those two that drives more oxygen in circulation. And usually oxygen is carried on red blood cells. We actually can carry oxygen in the liquid of our blood. And the liquid of our blood has a very high capacity for the amount of oxygen that it can carry, but it has very little at sea level. So by being in a chamber, we're driving a lot more oxygen into that plasma, which then as a result has this immediate effect by driving all this oxygen in circulation. Without oxygen, we can't make ATP or the energy currency. So what's happening initially is that you drive all this oxygen in circulation, you're going to immediately get more oxygen to tissues that need it, especially if there's an acute trauma, if there's areas of the body that are not getting enough oxygen. So if you've had a stroke, a heart attack, if you've had a traumatic limb amputation, a spinal cord injury, even a surgery where you've had trauma to tissue, and you have potentially at-risk tissue, you're getting more oxygen to it, you're going to allow more of that tissue to not die. That's the short end of it. You're also getting all this oxygen in circulation, and as a result of that, you're creating this stimulus for more stem cells to be released from your bones, your bone marrow, where it's made, and those stem cells can then be released, and as a result of that, help create the environment where all this different tissue in your body, these cells in your body can regenerate and revitalize themselves. Now, when you have all this oxygen circulation, you're also going to stimulate your DNA to express and suppress various genes that are responsible for healing, growth, and inflammation. And that's a process that happens after more than just one treatment. That's over a protocol of treatment. But what you can see there is you can see the whole body optimized. You can see new blood vessels forming, new connective tissue, new bones, new cartilage, new neurons. You can see inflammatory mediators, things that cause inflammation all to get decreased, things that are responsible for some of the inflammatory diseases out there like inflammatory bowel disease and Crohn's and ulcerative colitis and some of the factors that are related to that. You can see all those kind of go down. You can see basically the system... I like to think of it like as a scaffold builder, like you have this way to sort of rebuild the scaffolding of tissue from the ground up using this epigenetic shift, this change in the DNA that's happening as a result of the oxygen exposure.
0: Back to our previous conversation around, you know, the conflicts between, I guess, conventional medicine and then alternative medicine. What is hyperbaric approved for as a treatment from an FDA point of view? And then maybe what are the other things is it being used for that seems to have a good application but maybe isn't approved?
1: So in the U.S., there's 14 different indications that are approved for insurance approval, basically. So that Medicare, our socialized system here in the U.S., will pay for. Five of those conditions are things that could be treated outside the hospital. The rest are, are mostly treated in the trauma setting where I trained and when I was in medical school. Uh, the ones that are most commonly treated as an outpatient or even overall are diabetic foot ulcers. So patients with diabetes that have ulcers, we can save people from needing amputations all the time, which is obviously a nice thing. We have patients that come in from radiation injuries. So these are patients that have had radiation for cancer treatment and then have had injuries that have resulted from the radiation itself. Hyperbaric therapy is a very and vastly underutilized therapy. It's a very good therapy for radiation injury and recovery. I also use it for chronic bone infections, uh, sudden hearing loss, and for flaps and grafts. So these are things that are done in surgeries like plastic surgeries, for example, to help the body heal or regenerate tissue in a certain area. You can help if those aren't looking like they're gonna work. From the investigational side, that's where I do most of my work. And I like to think about this really simply, Nick. Hyperbaric therapy really does four things. The first thing it does is reverse low oxygen states, reverses hypoxia. The second thing it does is decrease inflammation. It's as powerful as taking a steroid for inflammation. It's a very, very profound anti-inflammatory. The third thing it does is release stem cells. And the fourth thing it does is kill bugs. It kills bugs, virus, bacteria, and fungus that do not like high-oxygen environments. So on the investigational side, you can basically say without hyperbole that hyperbaric therapy can almost work for anything. But the caveat there is when it's best to be used and where is the data that shows where it's being used most effectively. And so where I'm seeing a lot of the work that's being done now is in the brain, for example. So traumatic brain injury, is one of the bigger areas, so concussions are one of the big areas that we see a lot of benefit and a lot more studies that are coming out to show how well the brain can regenerate and revitalize itself in a hyperbaric chamber after an injury. And also from an optimization perspective, there is a program in Israel out of the hospital called Asaf Harafei run by one of my colleagues named Dr. Shia Fradi, They have, what's called the reverse aging program. And their reverse aging program is taking and harnessing this physiology that we're talking about and showing it in real time for people that are normal, don't have any medical problems, but want to optimize their health. So they're showing how imaging changes in the brain in the sense that you can see new blood vessels form. You can see new brain tissue regenerating. So they took some of the work they were doing and that others have done on like brain injury and stroke and said, well, why don't we just translate this to people that are just trying to stay healthy and have an improved lifespan? So they're doing the work on sort of normal people that don't have any injuries, but we can see new blood vessels in their brain. We can see new blood vessels being recreated around their heart. We can see new vascularization and improvements in sexual function as well. They actually published a study on erectile function as hyperbaric therapy being natural viagra
0: you mentioned the very topical word there viruses and you know given that we're in the middle of a global pandemic is there any evidence that hyperbaric could help with covid19
1: so right now uh, it's really interesting that's one of the things that i'm really excited about and this kind of goes along with what you were asking me about earlier ben is where things are going and how creative people can be under duress and that's really where the conventional medical field has been actually starting to think more like alternative medicine doctors. And it's kind of crazy to watch because I'm looking at these doctors in Chicago who have modified this hood that they're putting on people and pressurizing it and giving them high flow oxygen as if it was like a, a mild hyperbaric chamber instead of intubating patients. So instead of putting people on ventilators. So, and then there's some other data coming out of China where hyperbaric therapy may be a way that you can potentially either help people that are already on ventilators or temporize people before you need to put them on ventilators. Because what we're doing in a chamber, like we've talked about, is we're diffusing a lot more oxygen in circulation. And you can't do it just by high flow oxygen, just by breathing a mask on your face, because you don't have that pressure that pressure is key. And so there are doctors around the world that are interested in this. There is actually, I just read an article two days ago on this company that's looking to retrofit airplanes, airplanes, to not be an airplane environment, but a hyperbaric environment. So what's interesting about that is that If you're on an airplane, like if you're traveling anywhere in an airplane, they're all pressurized already, but they're pressurized to be in a hypo, H-Y-P-O, barrack environment. They're pressurized to 8,000 feet above sea level. That's where they pressurize you. And so at that level, you have less oxygen in circulation in that air. And that's one of the reasons why you feel like shit when you get off a plane. Not only are you changing time zones, but you're also getting less oxygen. And you're also, you know, as a result of that, gonna be a higher risk for infection as well. So, but what you potentially can do is reverse that pressurization and make it a hyperbaric environment, which is very interesting. So, even if we don't use these airplanes in this way for COVID-19 and treating massive numbers of people to get more oxygen circulation, it is still extremely exciting to me that people are thinking about. Ways of using hyperbaric environments in different ways, even in conventional medicine. So, the first way that COVID 19 treatment in a hyperbaric chamber is being looked at is getting more oxygen in circulation. Absolutely. The other way that's interesting but not as understood is how it can be an antiviral. And we don't have a lot of data there to know exactly what that means or how that's going to work. We do think that at very deep hyperbaric pressures, like 2.4 or 2.8 atmospheres, which is like 45 to 60 feet of seawater, we do know that it's very antibacterial and it's very antifungal. We just don't have any data on specifically COVID-19. So what I often talk about when we have, when people ask me about this, particularly I talk about immune system function. I really do feel that we are looking at it a little bit in the reverse in the sense of we should be looking to optimize our health, optimize our immune systems, optimize our foundation, our vitamins, minerals, our antioxidant levels, our guts. And that's in a practice that I have called health optimization medicine, but there's other practices out there that are focused on this, whether it be functional medicine or the like, where you're looking at those kind of foundational principles. But on the acute side of things or on the immediate side of things, hyperbaric therapy is being looked at as a way to oxygenate the body more effectively, or temporizing before you need to put somebody on a ventilator.
0: It'd be awesome if they did start tuning planes into hyperbaric chambers. That would just be incredible, and also, it's I incredible, guess, yeah, I guess it would be an effective way to try and maybe bring the cost down too, because you've got like many, many people, two hundred people, right. in right. one place. And let's face it, there are a lot of planes on the ground at the moment too, so.
1: That's what they were thinking about, repurposing all the planes on the ground. I don't know the engineering. I mean, I don't know if you could fly in a hyperbaric chamber, but I think keeping it on the ground because it's gonna be heavier, right? So the air is gonna be heavier. I don't think it would fly, but I mean, it's something you can repurpose an airplane for. So if you have any extra 737s hanging around, Nick, Ben, let me know and I can try to find some engineers to work on i know a couple of guys
0: we've spoken about hyperbaric from a sort of like a general health point of view what about a performance point of view
1: your hippocampus is the area that stores memories and has long-term memory storage and has the ability to take things out of long-term memory and bring them into your executive functional abilities which are in your frontal lobes so there's a significant interaction between your frontal lobes and your hippocampus to get memories in both directions. So short-term memory is becoming long-term, long-term memory is being able to be processed and used in the short-term or in for your frontal lobe for executive function, etc. cetera. What I mean by executive function is, you know, your ability to maintain things in your present awareness that you can do, get your shit done and not forget things. So you have this to do, that to do, you have these things to keep in your mind when you do certain things. It's very task-oriented, let's call it. It's actually really interesting. They did a study on Chinese college students and they actually might've been a little bit younger than that. I think they have this like major exam that they need to take in China. Like a lot of countries, I think India has one too, where there's only a very few top schools and there's like a billion people competing for them. In China, they have something similar. And so what they did in this study is that they did MRI scans, which are called functional MRI scans. They looked at the metabolism of the brain, how the brain was making energy. They did it before hyperbaric treatment and they did five hyperbaric treatments. And then after the fifth hyperbaric treatment, they put them back in the MRI scanner and they saw these areas of the brain light up like Christmas trees, the areas that are responsible for visual spatial recognition, executive function, and memory, and all of them working together in a more harmonized way, even after just five treatments. And this is not because we made new blood vessels in that timeframe, making new blood vessels takes much longer. It's that epigenetic shift that we were talking about. New blood vessels take about 20 treatments typically to see, but just this five treatment initial exposure enhanced oxygen delivery to tissue. It's this significant oxygen infusion, like we talked about. And as a result of it, it's like osmosis, right? The more oxygen you have in a blood vessel, the more of that oxygen is gonna diffuse into tissue outside of that blood vessel, simply because of, a, of that, the difference in amounts, right? So that, that variation. And so as a result of that, you get more oxygen to the tissue, more energy that's being produced. And then th- these areas are gonna start lighting up and you're going to be thinking faster and thinking quicker and having the ability to have that executive function be more online. So that's what a lot of people here in the Bay Area are doing as well. They don't like to tell people that they're using these technologies, interestingly enough even though I live in California, not everything is love and and peace over here, guys. In the upgraded executive world, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing a lot of people that are interested in cognitive optimization. My role with these people often is, this chamber is going to help you, but what really can help is if you optimize your cellular foundation at the same time. Because if you're trying to make energy and you, you don't have the ability to make energy well, that's eventually going to catch up to you just like if you have a bank with no money.
0: Dr. Scott, can you tell the audience about why your tongue is blue?
1: We have a for-profit company called Smarter Not Harder is the umbrella name of the company. And we have a product line under it called Transcriptions, which are trochees. And a troche is a specific medical delivery where it's a lozenge but you keep it in your mouth and you don't move it and you let it dissolve over 15 to 30 minutes. This particular lozenge makes your tongue blue, as you can see. And it's called blue canatine. Blue canatine is a combination of four ingredients that are nootropics. Nootropics is a category of supplements that help enhance your brain function. And we have a line of troscriptions that are coming out that are engaging people on the path to optimal health, where many of us find bottlenecks. One of those bottlenecks is cognitive function. So as a medical doctor, I was very interested in nootropics from a perspective of how we can do this in the safest and the most effective way, but in a precision dosed pharmaceutical grade way. So blue canatine is our first, which is a pharmaceutical grade product that has certifications of analysis for each of the ingredients. Caffeine, nicotine, hemp oil or hemp crystals actually and the one that turns your tongue blue called methylene blue this one and so methylene blue is probably the most intriguing of all of them because it's getting a lot of press now too actually and everybody knows about caffeine already caffeine's the most used stimulant and nootropic on the planet Um, nicotine is not far behind actually although not as much in cigarettes anymore which is good Nicotine itself, without the cigarette, is actually a fantastic nootropic. It does have addictive qualities, but they're fantastically more addictive if you vape it or you smoke it with any tobacco products associated with it. There's actually some significant studies to show that the addictive qualities of nicotine, the way to think about it is that the the additives in cigarettes are just as addictive and probably make nicotine more addictive. Nicotine by itself can be But especially if it's not vaped or smoked, it's much less addictive those ways, if it's only being used on its own. So we use a synthetic form of it, non-tobacco derived, and that it's pure nicotine. It has nothing, no additives at all. And so it's being used in Alzheimer's disease, actually being studied for cognitive effects of what it can do. Yeah. And so you'll see all these crazy biohackers all over the world using it in sprays and other ways because it does snap you, too. It, It does make your brain function faster. Oh, he's got it over there. I see it. Nice. And so you can't get that in the U.S., although I know I hear some people are trying that the spray doesn't exist. Hemp crystals, which are also important for the formula, not for the nootropic effect, but more for the neuroprotective effect and the ability to help things, the the ramping up of the effect of the entire formula, because nicotine and caffeine can kind of hit you hard if you've ever had nicotine by itself. If you're not used to it, you'd be kind of edgy and make you feel a little bit jumpy. So the, CBD, the hemp crystals help make that a little bit rounding, round out that feeling, And then methylene blue is the probably the most interesting of the four ingredients because nobody knows about it, although it was the first drug that was actually registered with our FDA back in the 1890s. It's been around forever. It's got significant potential on a number of different fronts. It's got antifungal, antibacterial, and antiviral properties to it. It's also got antioxidant properties to it. It's neuroprotective as a result of that. It actually can work like oxygen at the cellular level and make more energy. And that's how we're using it in glucanatine uh, because it helps you make energy just like oxygen does. It actually is used in the acute setting for carbon monoxide poisoning, just like hyperbaric therapy, interestingly enough. But it's, being, it's used a sort of lower grade carbon monoxide poisoning because it helps offload the carbon monoxide molecule from the hemoglobin which is that molecule that carries the oxygen and it helps make energy at the cellular level by recycling electrons in the simplest way i can say it
0: you'll have a really blue tongue if you do high dose
1: (laughs) not just a blue tongue nick it'll turn your urine blue and so if you've been taking b vitamins and you have that fantastic yellow neon yellow you're getting like a neon green which is very interesting for people they go oh my god what just happened to my urine what i love to do in the chamber is nothing and by that i mean i love to meditate in the chamber and so i've used blue cannitine in combination with my hyperbaric chambers that i have available to me as a way to meditate and to enhance my meditation because just like you can perform better actually there are studies showing that your multitask performance goes up while you're under oxygen conditions while you're in a hyperbaric chamber you can use a nootropic at the same time to help with that of course so combining it in a hyperbaric chamber so if you're doing you know activities if you're doing your meetings or your creative work or your your writing or whatever so i have done that as well in soft chambers but i also use it as a way to help focus on my breath and meditation honestly it's very easy for us when we're meditating to become so expansive that we stop sort of we go from being in sort of like a theta down to a delta and like you're sort of no longer aware that you're you know that you're not sleeping but you're sort of in that stage right before you're actually sleeping that sort of deeper level of uh, your stages of sleep you know your delta so i use hyperbaric therapy and in combination with the blue canadiene in a way to help with my meditations because you sort of and even without hyperbaric therapy too but but I find it's a way to help you know concentrate on my breath and become more expansive, but without sort of losing that expansiveness into sleep. <laughs> so I guess that's the best way to describe it.
0: Dr. Scott, when we started, you mentioned that you know outside of hyperbaric, there are some other interesting technologies that you're using from a performance point of view. Mm-hmm. Just tell us what some of those are.
1: So hyperbaric therapy is this fantastic synergizer accelerator of healing. That everybody should use but not everybody has the ability to use it and i'm very understanding of that so i my daily practices and those that i work with the clients that i work with i try to work on things that don't cost as much money and that are hopefully free right and so the things that i do every day the first one is meditate you don't need anything to meditate it doesn't cost you anything except for time you know time is Definitely money, but I do feel like this is time or money well spent, if that's how you want to think about it. And so, meditation is a big thing that I do in my practices. And there's technologies that you can use to help you meditate better, if you want to call it that, or or make it easier for you to get yourself into that meditative place. And I've been toying around with some of these technologies: some that are sort of more vibratory, some that are more sound-related, some that are more f- electric-related. So, like electric stimulation and others that, it, that I've been toying around with a little bit and I have colleagues that are messing around with as well. For me, what's happening is that you have this sort of this shift from an HRV perspective as well. So you have this vagal. So if I, like I've used some of these technologies and all of a sudden, like I feel my heartbeat rate drop 20% in 30 seconds or in a minute, like I know that like, I'm well on my way much faster as a result of that. So there's some new technologies that I've been exploring related to meditation. I'm also very much a proponent for movement in general. So, you know, movement, whether it be just taking a walk around the block or working with movement specialists or doing your own movement and trying to be more proactive about it rather than reactive about it until something happens. So I'm, I've been doing very basic things and learning more about using things that are very low tech, but are very, very helpful to keep flexible and working with practitioners that are doing that. I also love detox technologies as well as I can, as much as I can access them. The ones that that everybody can access, and that's free, is not eating. Easy, fasting. Fasting is a great detox technology. It's a very ancient one when we didn't have access to food whenever we wanted it. And it's a fantastic way to recalibrate your immune system, regenerate your immune system, get rid of garbage. If you are not healthy, if you are actually quite sick, fasting can make you sicker. So you have to be careful about how long you fast. For most people, though, doing intermittent fasting is pretty easy. That's doing a fast of maybe 16 hours um, and then having an eight-hour window where you eat. Some people do this every day, and that's called intermittent fasting, you know, for, as a lifestyle, but you can do it more intermittently as well. You don't have to do it every day to get benefits from it. Longer fast, I find, are the more therapeutic from a detoxification perspective. And that's usually, for most people, that's about 72 hours is where the major benefits between 72 hours and, and about five days is like the three days to five day mark is the significant window where most, the, all the benefits they need from a fast. And this would be like a water fast, what I'm talking about. Or also, you can use minerals. And there are different ways to fast. But anyway, not eating is free. I also love, from an expensive perspective, I love infrared saunas. And I have one at my house when I found out that I was going to have four kids, which was a surprise to everybody in my household. I have a very small home. I live in the Bay Area. So I needed to get my own room to hide. And that room is my infrared sauna that I get to close the glass door and nobody else to come gets to come in there with me except for my wife if she wants to so but the infrared sauna is a fantastic detoxification technology using light in the spectrum of the sun that causes you to heat up you can you don't feel like you do in like a finished sauna where you get like blasted with heat it's a little bit different you sort of heat in from the inside out and I love it I use it almost every night especially these days. And so those are some of the major things that I use on a daily basis.
0: How do people find you and find out more about what you do?
1: Sure. So on the hyperbaric side of things, I have a specific practice for that. And the website is integrativehbot.com. So it's, you can find us on the World Wide Web if you've heard of those. So that's me. That's my personal site, integrativehbot.com. I also started a new collaborative with some colleagues and engineers called HBOT Plus, and this is gonna be a, a new platform that we're rolling out, and the website is Hbot.plus. And this is going to be a platform that we're also developing on Facebook to help be sort of a central hub for hyperbaric information and also allied therapies. And I'm hoping to bring that out in a very cohesive way because the hyperbaric community is very, very disjointed. And then on the health optimization side, my concierge wellness practice I have my own personal site, it's home-sf.co, and then our nonprofit is homehope.org. Now, if you just want to go to one location, I have my Instagram, it's at Dr. Scott Scherr, and we have our, our blue canatine, our blue pills, at Troscriptions, like prescriptions, but with a TRO in front. So lots of different places, but if Instagram is the place you go for your media, those are the two places that I do most of my engagement these days. And I work with people all over the world, helping advocate, you know, educate, and consult on hyperbarics, on integrative approaches to hyperbaric medicine, on health optimization medicine, et cetera.
0: Scott, one last question. Could you give your top three tips for any executive that's looking to improve their personal and professional performance? I know we've spoken about a lot of different things, but what would be your sort of top, Three key things?
1: So I know we've spoken about a lot, of, a lot of things, and this has been a lot of fun, Nick, uh, the second go around. I think we were definitely more expansive this time around, that's for sure. And I think that's the first thing that I would recommend for any executive is to establish a contemplative, meditative practice in their, in their daily life and in, integrate it. And knowing that it's not time that's taking you away from the work that you're doing, it's time that's adding. To the work that you're doing in this world whatever that looks like for you or for that person uh, that's listening for you listening is up to you there's no right way to meditate there's no right way to establish this time even just shutting off your phone and going for a walk in nature for 10 minutes is a meditative practice honestly even if you're there with your thoughts even though you're not your thoughts the first step is to be away from the things that maintain your attention away from at least your thoughts of being more expansive. And then the next step is really taking it and saying that, well, maybe these thoughts aren't me and maybe I'm more than just my thoughts. And then looking at the meditative practices as a result of some of that. If you want to go there, if you don't just get the fuck outside, take a walk in nature. That's cool too. That's number one. The second thing I would say is don't be reactive with your health. Be proactive with your health and optimize your health prior to you requiring, prior to there being a pandemic, prior to there being an emergency, when all of a sudden like you have X, you have to do all these things to get yourself healthy. So my colleague, Dr. Ted, who founded Health Optimization Medicine and practice likes to say, just because you're not sick doesn't mean you're well, it just means you're not sick. And so remember that and you don't have to live in that paradigm you can live in a paradigm the one that i live in and more people are living in is how can you optimize your health before something happens and be more resilient when those things inevitably will happening will happen already so i think that would be the second thing and that would be i do that through the practice of health optimization medicine and i guess the third thing what comes up to me for today is play make sure that life is fun fun and learning okay but if it's not fun then why why right why do we get up every day because we hopefully have a a sense of wonder and a sense of joy i am lucky i have all these children to remind me when i see them in the morning when i'm leaving the house when i'm first getting there that life is joyous and as we get older we forget and so don't just have a kid to do it <laughs> or for, you know, there's other ways to play and have fun, but whatever that is for you, that's what I would be emphatic about too.
0: Thank you, Dr. Scott. It's been an amazing interview. Even better the second time around. You're a I gent so. for uh, re-recording it. Thank you.
1: Oh no, it's my pleasure. Uh, it's been fun, Nick. And thank you, Ben. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you.